Right, am I on? Is this on? Can you hear me? Okay, good. I'm going to back this up just a little. Well, good morning, everyone. Thank you so much. All right, I like that. Whenever I say good morning in my church, I don't get a response, so I'm going to try it again. It kind of caught me off guard there, so awesome. Good to see everybody. <laughs> good to see everybody here this morning. I want to thank you so much for inviting me to be up here. Pastor Kendrick, when I was talking to him, so a lot of times at my church, I have these t-shirts that'll have like servant of Jesus or redeemed or stuff like that I'll wear from time to time and he said no just wear whatever you want it's fine thought he might be setting me up and so I wasn't sure but uh this has been great we've been very welcomed here this morning and we're so grateful to be here um as he said I did serve uh, 11 years in the Navy and while I was in the Navy I was a helicopter air crew rescue swimmer um, yeah, it, you know, I, I rode in the back of the helicopter and just made sure pilots didn't do anything stupid. That's basically the summary of my job. Um, but while I was going through my training, all they kept telling us was just how prestigious this position was that, that I was a trying to attain this idea of, of helicopter air crew. And they, they, they made it sound like it's, just, you know, it's the cream of the crop. It's the highest you can get. And, and uh, rescue swimmer, you know, they, they're going to hold you to a higher standard. And that's all they talked about. So they wanted us to look the part. And so every day we had uniform inspections every morning before we even went to breakfast, before we PT'd anything, out in uniform inspections. And they wanted the creases to be sharp and they wanted everything ironed. And the big thing is they wanted your boots shiny. And so I remember every single night I was going through my training, we would sit there in front of the TV, me and my buddies, and we were just shining those boots, just shining those boots. And they looked like glass. They looked so good. I mean, you could, you could see yourself. If I had hair, I could brush my hair in the, in the reflection there. But I remember one day um, when we were going through a particular uh, evolution of training, one of our instructors had to come and he had to actually wear his flight suit. Now we didn't have flight suits yet, but one of our instructors had to wear his flight suit and he had to wear his flight boots. And we we were all lined up and I remember all of us students were lined up and this instructor comes and he shows up and his flight suit looks like he just pulled it out of a a ball. It looks like he just pulled it out of a sea bag. He probably did. And we were like, is going on with this guy and then he shows up this is our instructor right and he shows up and his boots are just all scuffed and scratched and and so you could see imagine us students here we're sitting here judging this instructor like oh this guy's terrible I would never let my uniform look like that I would never and we learned of course as soon as you're done with training and nobody's actually making you do that every day you don't do it but the the idea was this 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 it just kind of got to us that they're sitting here making us shine our boots and, and, and iron our uniforms and they want us to look so good. And this guy isn't even willing to do the same himself. It was almost like he was there preaching to us, do as I say, not as I do. And a lot of times we experience this in our life. We're around people and that's kind of the, the motto. Hey, do as I say, not as I do. And it really, it really is, is something that will eat at you. It is something that will just drive you crazy when you're sitting here being told by this person, you should do this, you should do this, but they won't do it at all. And it's, it's a terrible feeling when someone's commanding you to do something that they are unwilling to do themselves. And that's why we are so blessed that our God has not told us to do something that he is not willing to do himself. That's why we are so blessed that Jesus doesn't say, do as I say, not as I do, but he says, do as I do. 
He says, look to me, look at my actions, look at my character, look at who I am and imitate me as I do. And Paul shows this in his letter to the Philippians. I know you guys have already been going through uh, the letter to the Philippians and he's been talking to the Philippian church about their attitudes towards one another. Okay, and so we're gonna learn today from our passage Uh, just as the Philippians did, that the followers of Jesus, let's hit that first slide if we could, the followers of Jesus must seek to have the same selfless attitude that Christ exemplifies, okay? So remember, Paul here is speaking to Christians, okay? He's speaking to this church in Philippi. And so I want to start off by saying, as we're talking through this and we're saying that we need to have this selfless attitude we need to understand that a selfless attitude will not save you. And I say this at the very beginning because I would hate for someone to go through and hear everything I'm saying and think, oh, there's a check mark or a checklist for salvation there. A selfless attitude will not earn you forgiveness. Paul instead is instructing Christians how they're to live because they're forgiven. Once they're forgiven, after they're forgiven. And so I say that just to say that if you're not born again, if you are not safe and secure in Christ through faith, what you hear today is not, hey, do this, have a selfless attitude and you'll be saved. But instead, what I want you to hear is all the things that Christ has done in his selfless attitude for you and to put your faith and trust in him alone for your salvation. So I wanted to to start with that, but if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn with me to Philippians chapter 2. Again, as I said, I know you've already been going through the book of Philippians, and Paul has been writing to them, and this is this is a letter of joy. Paul is just excited to talk to the Philippians because they've helped him in his trials. Uh, Paul is writing this letter from prison, and after he's told them how thankful he is for them and how much he loves them, he's encouraging them now to live a life, he says, worthy of the gospel. He says, I love you Philippians so much. You're such an encouragement to me. Now I wanna be an encouragement to you and I'm gonna, I'm gonna spur you on and I'm gonna instruct you and I'm gonna give you an encouragement to live a life worthy of the gospel. And in the first part of this chapter, chapter two, that's that's what he's been doing and telling them how they're to live together, how they're to get along together and not look after their own interests, but look after the interests of others. How they're to be of one mind and one spirit united in love. So that's the context. That's where we are right now. And so after he's set this up, And said, this is how you're to live. Love one another. Don't do anything from selfish ambition. Look out for one another. He goes right into verse five. And I'm gonna read verses five through 11. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. In heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father." Father, we love you and we praise you and I thank you so much for your word. I thank you so much for your son and I pray today that you would shape us and mold us into his image and I pray that none of us, Father, would leave here in the same state we came in and it's in Jesus' name we pray, Father. 
Amen. So as, as you've heard Paul lay this out, okay, he, he says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God. This is some of the clearest what we call Christology, Christology in the Bible, okay? The, the idea that Jesus is God, that's what a lot of people have a hard time understanding about the Christian faith, and that's what separates us from a lot of other faiths, okay? And that's what uh, separates us from people who uh, uh, claim to be Christian, you know, but they, they can't really get to this idea, well, Jesus isn't God, he's, he's a lesser being. This right here shows us the deity of Christ. Jesus is God in eternity past. And so this is one of the go-to texts whenever we wanna defend the deity of Jesus. And some even believe that this is a hymn, some people believe that this was a, a hymn in the early church that Paul took, and he modified it a little bit to use as a teaching point. Maybe. We don't really know. We don't have anything firm on that. But here's what I want to point out. People will take this text, and they'll spend hours and days and weeks and months just digging in and talking about how this shows Jesus is God. This shows the deity of Christ, and that is 100% true. I don't want to take it away. This is one of the most important texts we have, but I want, to show, I want to show this. This is the bedrock of our faith, but if all we see here is something to know, then we've missed the point. There is something we must do in this text as well. There's a command Paul gives to the church at Philippi. What does he say in the very beginning? Have this mind among yourselves. That's a command. Whenever the apostles and the authors of Scripture tell us something to do, they don't offer it as kind little suggestions. Hey, if you get around to it. Inspired by the Holy Spirit, Paul here is commanding them to have this mind among themselves. He's commanding them to have the same attitude that Christ exemplifies. And so that's part of the importance of reading our Bible properly when we read our Bible properly, we see that there's things in there not just to know, but there's things to do. This requires action on our part. We may know that Jesus is God and Savior, but what do we do about it? The Bible says we're to follow him, we're to worship him, we're to obey him, and Paul here says we're to imitate him. So Paul here is specific, speaking specifically about Christ's selflessness, in the way he acted for others. So I want us to see that. There's, there's a command here to have this selfless attitude. And so what is a selfless attitude and how do we know when we've attained it? So that's the question I want us to answer for the rest of our time together. If you'll put that next slide up there, I want to ask what are the marks of a selfless attitude? What is it Paul is commanding us here to do in imitating Christ? And we're going to see four marks of a selfless attitude. Three of them are just plain as day, they're overt. One of them is really more implied because we see three actions of Christ that we're to imitate. And we see one action of God here that we're to respond to. So as we jump into this, verse six, have this mind, or verse five, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Verse six, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. And we could spend weeks, we could spend months on this text alone. 
This text right here has kept theologians busy for centuries. What does Paul mean? A thing to be grasped. Some translations will say uh, something to cling to. The idea is that Jesus didn't see equality with God something that he could or should take advantage of. He didn't see it as something he couldn't let go. And we could wrestle with this and, and look at it from all the angles, but I don't think it's as hard as we make it out to be simply because of the next word. What does he say? But, all right, now that's, that's an important word. I hate to, to, to be that funny, but buts are big in Scripture, okay? Whenever you see that word, the author of Scripture is contrasting something there, and we need to pay attention. He didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but, okay, he emptied himself. Again, another huge theological debate. What does that mean, he emptied himself? Well, some translations say he made himself nothing, some translations say he gave up his divine privileges. Some say he made himself of no reputation. So we're already facing a lot of, of difficulties here. He didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He emptied himself. And some people, especially starting in the, with uh, liberal Christianity in the 18th century, began to take this to mean that Jesus gave up his divinity. And let us never, ever, ever fall into that heresy. That is not what the Bible is saying here. It doesn't say that anywhere at all. What does this mean? Paul tells us he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. He took on flesh. He became a man. He didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped. All the rights and privileges afforded to him, all the comfort that he had at the Father's side in heaven, he didn't count that as something he was unwilling to set aside. He was willing to set aside that comfort. He was willing to set aside those privileges for a time for others. He emptied himself and he came to earth and he lived as a man with no privileges, with no esteem. And so I want us to see this. this the first mark of a selfless attitude is that it seeks to give rather than to keep. Yeah, thank you. God is giving, and we see that here in Christ's attitude. He's willing to give. Paul uses beautiful language here to explain that Christ was willing to give himself. He was willing to go and do what needed to be done, not to just sit there and grasp what is rightfully his, not to just hold on to the luxuries of heaven and say, no, no, could never give this up. He was willing to give not just something, but everything. He was willing to give himself he was willing to pour himself out, to empty himself. He didn't count what was his too valuable to give for others. Now, I want you to notice, I say up here, the selfless attitude seeks to give rather than to keep. And some of you may think, well, shouldn't it be the selfless attitude seeks to give rather than to take? Isn't that kind of the opposite of giving? But that's a trap we can fall into if we're not careful. The trap is that we think, well, I'm not taking from anybody. I'm not hurting anybody. I'm, just, I'm not taking what's theirs. I'm not stealing. I'm not cheating. I'm not depriving anyone, so I'm fine. I'm keeping what's mine. What's wrong with that? Well, the idea that I'm not cheating, I'm not depriving, I'm not stealing, that's a completely passive attitude. It's all these things I'm not doing, I'm not doing. It's very hands-off. Paul doesn't call us here, and Jesus never called us, to be hands-off in our character, to be hands-off in our attitude. 
Not to be passive, but to be active, to be giving. In case you don't know, if Jesus had never done this, if he had never emptied himself, if he had never poured himself out, you and I would have no chance of forgiveness, no chance of redemption. You and I would be lost and ruined forever, but Jesus gave himself for our salvation. Imagine for a moment if he had chose to just be passive. Imagine if Jesus had just said, hey, you do you, earth, I'm going to do me. You keep what you got. I'm going to keep what I got. No problems. We would be ruined forever. But he was selfless. He is selfless. And he's not passive about it. He seeks to give rather than just keep. Now remember, Paul is teaching this church here how to live together, how to think of one another. So I want to ask you this, who in your church are you seeking to pour yourself out for? This is a family you have here. Are we just having a hands-off attitude? I got what's mine, they got what there. Or are we actively seeking to give ourselves for one another? Is this our attitude? One Seeking to give. Husbands, are you seeking to give yourself? Are you seeking to empty yourself and pour yourself out for your wife and for your family and for your children? Is this the attitude you have towards them? Now, some people, when I hear, whenever I say, you know, seeks to give, the first thing we think of is money, right? He's not just talking about money. Nothing... God gives is just for you. That means your faith. That faith is not just for you. That faith is for others and it's for the body of Christ. The knowledge that you have, the talents, the skills that you have, they're not just for you to keep. God gives you those for others. Your time, our time, is not given to us just for us. Are we willing to give our time to our brothers and our sisters, to our wives and our husbands and our family and our children? How are we imitating Jesus if we simply choose to keep these to ourselves? Instead, we should follow Christ's example and actively seek to give ourselves for others. But let's keep going. What does Paul say? He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being made in the likeness of men. I want you to think about this for a moment. This is the Son of God. He's existed for eternity with the Father. The angels worship him in heaven. All of creation worships him. He sits enthroned. And over here you got mankind. Rebels. Unholy. Ungodly. Seek wickedness. Constantly. And the Son of God says, I'll become one of them. I'm willing to do that. This is what we call the condescension of Christ. And why did it happen? Because he was willing. Because he's selfless. The king of all creation was willing to take the form of a servant. And so that's the second mark we want to see here. A selfless attitude seeks to serve rather than be served. I want us to see that this is more an attitude of status than of actually serving. Because 
think about our society and our connotation, the idea of serving isn't so much the act of, oh, I gotta go serve. It's the, it's the humility of it. It's the status that I've been lowered down to this level where I have to serve other people. That's why anytime you show up to a job, the new guy gets the worst assignment, right? Again, back to the Navy. Oh, man. Ooh, I, mm, you don't want to be the, the new guy showing up. You get the worst duties possible. Some of them are made up just for our own fun. But that happens, right? And that's the reason you don't see CEOs cleaning toilets. Because it's this status thing. Like, oh, no, no, I could never do that. I want to tell you, one of the most powerful examples in my life, aside from Christ, is that of my father. My dad, we, we didn't have, you know, a lot of money. My dad was a prison guard growing up, um, and he did everything he could to provide for us. And I remember there was a time when uh, we, I, don't, I, don't, I was too young to really know the situation, but I know he had to take a second job, and he took a job working nights as a janitor. And that was one of the things that my dad didn't say, hey, I'm, I'm too good for this. He said, yeah, I'll go do this. No problem. Work is work. I'm, I'm, who am I to think I'm you know, above working a second job, working nights, working as janitor, whatever it is. And that has stuck with me to this day. And to this day, that is my attitude. There's no job I'm too good for. There is no task that I am above because of the example my father showed me. And we see this same thing on the last night Jesus spent with his disciples. What did he do? He washed their feet. The lowest of all the duties there were. And what did he say once he had finished washing their feet? He said, if I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I've given you an example that you should do just as I have done for you. It doesn't get any clearer than that. Jesus was willing to serve. The Son of Man came to serve, not to be served, he tells us. Now again, let's go back and remember Paul speaking to a church. Think about this for a moment. If you've ever spent any amount of time in a church, you'll know where I'm going with this. When God decided to gather his children together into this thing called the church and expected them to get along for 2,000 plus years and agree with one another and live in such a way that the world knew that there was a God and knew that they were different, how in the world did he ever expect that to work? Because he expected them to follow the example of his son. That's the only way this works. We can come and we can sit on Sunday mornings and we can listen to messages and then go our separate ways, but we will never fulfill the mission God has given his church unless we follow the example his son Jesus has given us. And remember what Paul told them just a little bit earlier in this chapter. He said, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. That is exactly what Jesus has demonstrated here. He took the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. I've seen many Christians, sadly, who would never even consider that this is a command for them. Now, I know nothing really about your church, your situation, so this is not anything towards you, but I have seen Christians argue and fight over the music. 
that is played. Not just the songs, not just the style, the tempo, the key. It takes place, it happens. I've seen Christians come together and argue and fight over decorations, over the proper way to say hello. And when things weren't the way they wanted them, well, I'm done with this, I'm leaving. Things need to be done my way. That's a worldly view. The world views things like importance in terms of hierarchy. Service done to me, the more people that serve me, the higher I am. It's upside down in the kingdom of Christ. The more people I serve, the more I'm like my Savior Jesus. I'm not called to seek my own best. I'm called to seek others' best. I use an analogy a lot of times. A lot of times people will say, uh, think of church and they'll treat church like a buffet. People show up to a buffet. What do you want? You want all your best foods and you want to go through and you want them ready whenever you show up. Okay, and I want some of this. Yes, I want potatoes. Yes, you know I want fried fish. fish. Yes, you know I want some of this. Nope, don't like broccoli. Thanks. Okay, good. I'm going to go sit by myself. And that's how people treat church often. I show up, look, I want things the way I want them. I will take this, I will take this, I will take this. I don't like that, so I'm not going to have anything to do with that. That's not the way church is intended to be. Church is intended to be a potluck. Now, I'm from East Texas, and I know exactly what a potluck is. Is that, is that a good California word too, potluck? Everybody know potluck? Yeah, okay. Potluck, what happens? Everybody brings their best dish. Can you imagine going to a potluck and everybody just sitting around waiting to be served? Or better yet, I don't know what kind of cook your pastor is, but imagine going to a potluck and and he's the only one bringing the dish. It's probably going to be a pretty sparse meal. But imagine if everybody brings their best dish. I'm not going to be served. I'm going to serve. Look at the meal we have. Everyone is fed and everyone is full and it's joyful and everyone knows that they're loved. That's how the church is intended to be when we're willing to serve rather than be served. And going on, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Get that next slide. The next thing we see is a selfless attitude seeks to obey rather than rule. Now remember, Jesus is God. He is the master and Lord of all creation, yet he chose to humble himself. Take the form of a servant and obey. Because that's what we needed. That's what we don't have. That's what we were lacking was obedience to God. That is what mankind was lacking. That is what separated us from God. And Jesus said, if that's what's needed, that's what I will do. I will go down, I will take the form of a man, and I will obey the Father, even when no one else will. He arranged himself under the authority of the Father. The Bible tells us he submitted to the Father's will, and we hate this word. Oh, we hate this word so much today, submit. Oh, what a sign of weakness. To submit, that's humiliating. 
Let me tell you, it took more strength and courage for Jesus to submit to the Father than to disobey. Now, I'm not saying here that we as Christians seek to obey every single person in my life. I'm not hoping, I hope you don't go out this week and and somebody walks up to you on the street, you know, and, and they just bark a command and you say, well, that guy on Sunday said I'm supposed to obey. And so, you know, then you, you wind up giving them all your money or something like that. I don't know. But that's not what I'm saying. We need to understand, though, Christians, there are people in our lives we are to obey. We're all to obey God. And some of us have been arra- arranged uh, to a position of leadership where we lead others. Right, And we need to understand that that is a duty that's been given to us. But as Christians, even our leading needs to be done with an attitude of obedience to God. So when the world thinks of a leader, right, what do they think of? They think of somebody with a, an iron fist. They think of somebody who takes charge and somebody who leads the way. And, and, and often, what does that lead to in our world whenever somebody is not restrained by the Holy Spirit of God? That's when dictators rise. That's when tyrants rise, when they have the opportunity to rule and things go my way. I really didn't intend to put so many Navy illustrations in here, but the worst thing in the whole world is that, uh, that Navy ensign who shows up at his first command and has got a little bit of authority and a little bit of control, and everybody knows we're in for it now. The best leaders, though, are those who saw their leadership as a duty. Those who saw their leadership as a responsibility, they led out of service. They cared for their sailors and marines. It wasn't an opportunity for me to rule and have my way. It was an opportunity for them to serve. Jesus led his disciples. He said, you call me Lord and Master, this is true. He was Lord and Master, but he didn't do it just to simply rule. He didn't do it out of a sense of wanting to be a tyrant. He did it out of obedience to the Father and out of love for his disciples. That's the kind of leadership we lead even out of obedience. So again, I'm going to ask this question, stepping on some toes here, husbands, Fathers, are we leading our families because we have the opportunity to rule? Or are we leading our families, are we leading our wives out of obedience to the Father? As an act of love, as an act of duty. Mothers, are you leading and discipling your children in a way that is ruling and dominating? Or are you leading your children out of obedience to the Father? Because of this great privilege and responsibility you've been given. I know you, you're going to talk a little later about a pastor search committee, right? You guys are in a, a transition period. Well, let me tell you something to think about when you're going to meet your next pastor. Your pastor, any pastor, needs to be somebody who leads a church not to rule, but because they're obeying the Father. Watch out for the wolf who wants a church to call his own. Watch out for the wolf who wants a church that will simply say yes 
that will elevate him to a status of power. That is why whenever God is telling us the characteristics, the character traits we're to look for in elders, they're character traits, that's what they are. Not the ability to draw a crowd, not the ability to speak so well that everybody wants to come hear him, it's character traits. And even Peter, whenever he's talking to elders in 1 Peter 5, that's what he tells them. He said, elders, I'm going to tell you this as a fellow elder. You lead your flock with love, with compassion, not out of compulsion, not seeking for dishonest gain. Your pastor needs to lead your church out of obedience. Every Christian needs to understand that leadership is done with an attitude of obedience And Christians are even told in Scripture to submit, there's that word again, to the authority of the church. Again, we don't like this. Submit to the authority of the church? And the Bible tells us the reason we're to submit to the authority of the church is because that elder, those elders of the church, they have a responsibility to God to lead you well. So make this a joy for them. It's a duty. It's a responsibility. Yes, it's a privilege. Being a pastor is the greatest thing. I I, I couldn't even imagine one day I would be a pastor. I love being a pastor. So I'm not saying it's, oh, it's this terrible thing. But it is a responsibility. It is a duty. I will be held to a higher standard. I will have to face God one day and explain and give an account for how I led his people. Did I do it simply to rule? Or did I do it to obey him? And that's why as Christians we're called to submit to the authority of the church because of the great responsibility given to those who lead us. But look here, it says Christ was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Why does he say it like that? Why does he even add that? Because he wanted to make it clear how much Jesus' death cost him. Jesus' death was one of the most cruel forms of punishment and torture imaginable. But Jesus didn't say, well, that's that's just going to hurt too much. Can't do that. Jesus said, I will obey. Father, I will obey to the point of death, even death on a cross. Often our obedience goes up to the point it's dangerous. Our obedience goes to the point it's inconvenient. Our obedience goes to the point it costs me something. Jesus gave it all. There was no limit to his obedience. And remember, that is the example we're called to follow here. Think about this. Paul's talking to a church, and he's telling them how to get along together. He says, you should love one another, serve one another, think of one another so much that it, it is following right in with Christ and his obedience to death, even death on a cross. That's the kind of love you should have for one another. Our attitude must never, ever be, I'm the master of my own life. We should seek to obey. Going on, verse 9. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus did 
what the father asked. He emptied himself. He poured himself out. He became a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, because of that, God has highly exalted him. Now, I want to make sure we don't go down the wrong track here. God is not rewarding Jesus for good behavior. We need to be careful not to read that. Jesus did this, this, this. Okay, so God said, okay, you've done enough. I'll give you the name above every name. That's not what the Bible is saying here. That was always Christ's place. He has always been the name above all names. He has always been the one to whom every knee should bow and tongue confess. But God confirmed it. He confirmed it in power. Because he was obedient to the point of death. And God said, watch this. And God raised him. He said, death can't hold this one. This is the name above every name. Death can't hold this one. This is the one to which every knee will bow and tongue confess. Yes, even death will have to bow down to Jesus. So I don't want us to fall into this trap of thinking, oh, okay, that's the example. I do a lot of good stuff. I humble myself. I become a servant. And then I'm going to get God. I'm going to get made God. Not, that's a different religion, different service, different day of the week. But from God's actions here, this is what I want us to see. The last point here is that a selfless attitude rejoices in Jesus's glory. A Christian attitude is a selfless one because it is to be completely focused, completely wrapped up in Jesus Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. By nature, we are to be selfless because we are to be Christ-centered. My salvation isn't even about me. That's what I need to understand. My salvation is not even about me. My salvation is about him. My salvation is about glory due to Jesus Look what God has declared that is the name above every name. He's declared that Jesus is God. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. Jesus is king. And every tongue confess, Jesus is Lord. Jesus is master. God has declared these things. He's God. He's king. He's master. Those who are of the world, that's our problem, right? Before we're in Christ, when we're of the world, we see ourselves as God. We see ourselves as king. We see ourselves as master. I saw myself as the center of the universe. Everything is about me. Before I was truly a Christian, that was even my attitude. Well, God's there for me. God's there to do things for me. God's there to give things for me. I am the center of the universe. Copernicus got it wrong. Was it Copernicus or Galileo? I'm not the center of the universe. That's what we need to understand. And before I was made new in Christ, I rejoiced in my own glory. That was the most important thing. And let me tell you, there wasn't a lot there to rejoice about. I was an enemy of God. I was unworthy. I was dishonored. But when I saw what was required of God, that God requires holiness and perfection, I knew I was ruined. I knew there was no hope for me. I didn't have what was required. But when I learned that Jesus is everything God has required, I rejoiced. 
that Jesus is God, he is king, he is master, that he did die a death to pay for my sins and that his resurrection did secure my right standing before God. Let me tell you, I rejoiced. When I learned that because of his status as God, king, and master, he has the authority to do so and he chooses to offer me forgiveness, I rejoiced. I rejoiced that God chose to arrange things in such a way that he would bestow such praise and such esteem to such a gracious, gracious Lord and Savior. I rejoice in my salvation, and my salvation is due to the glory of Jesus. My knee is a knee that gladly bows to him. My tongue is a tongue that gladly confesses that he is Lord of all. Now remember, God doesn't save you because you're awesome. God saves you because Christ is worthy. Because Christ is gracious. Because Christ was selfless. And one day, this will come to pass. Let me tell you, every knee will bow and every tongue confess. Some of them aren't going to be happy about it. Even those who are going to be carried away in chains for eternity will be brought to the point of bowing before the king. As they see once and for all what they've missed out on. As they're dragged away because they were so set on being God. Because they were so set on being king. Because they were so set on being master that they refused his pardon and they refused his grace. Because whenever they heard his commands, they just thought of how oppressive they were. They weren't willing to submit. They had no reason to rejoice because they refused to see the truth. They rejoice only in their own glory. Therefore, they'll never receive glory. So if you've yet to come to Jesus, if you are not secure in him, hear now that that is his invitation to you. To gladly bow. To gladly confess before you're forced to do so. Turn from your sins and believe in him for forgiveness and eternal life and then rejoice that God has given us such a gracious Savior. And for those of us who've been given this blessing of being brought into the kingdom, of being made a child of God, we look forward to the coming of our God. We look forward to the coming of our King and our Master. We look forward to the day when we see Him and we're able to bow. When we see Him and we're able to confess with the angels that Jesus is Lord of all. That's our hope. That's what we look forward to. That's our life. And until that day comes, we are to obey His commands and we're to follow His example. Beginning with that of His selfless attitude. Would you pray with me? Father, we love you. Lord God, we praise your great name. What a great salvation you have won for us. Father, what a great king you have set over us. Lord, what a great example you have given us to follow. 
Father, if the world would but follow His example. If the world could see, Lord, just our inability to be selfless even for a day, even for an hour. If the world could but see, Father God, the great grace with which you sent your son Jesus. Father, they won't see that until we see it ourselves, until we act it out, until we give them an example to see that we follow the master. So, Father, I pray that the world would see this in us. I pray for this church, Father. I pray that they would be of one mind. I pray that they would be the church that Paul is commanding them to be. I pray that they would be a church that follows the example of Christ. I pray, Father, for their next pastor to be a man who leads them out of obedience and love. Father, I pray for husbands and wives. I pray for families here, Lord God. I pray for any brokenness there, Father, to be healed and to be corrected out of following the example of Jesus. I pray that people's hearts would be turned to think of others, Lord. And I pray, Father, that we would realize that this is done out of obedience to you. I pray, Father, that we would rejoice in Jesus' kingship and his lordship. And I pray, Father God, that all of us We continue to glorify your son Jesus out of obedience and love and worship. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, Father. Amen.